The scripture this morning is from 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord, Jesus Christ. He died for us so that, whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, hello, my name is Tim Mascara. <coughs> Thank you. <laughs> Not about me, though. Nah. Uh, if you're new to the church, if this is your first time or you're joining us online or uh, you're new in the recent months, uh, I've been away on sabbatical. I've had the gift, uh, the blessing to, uh, to be able to rest and to renew with my family. I shouldn't, ex- I shouldn't be surprised that I tear up if you know me. Uh, <clears throat> I want to say thank you. First, I want to say thank you to the elders for your support and encouragement for me to take this time. I want to say thank you to the pastors and the staff who have been willing to take on some of the responsibilities and Frank Lopane to be able to step in in various ways uh, during these three months. But I want to thank you, the congregation. It's your prayers, your support, your encouragement has been a real gift to, to me. And I'm glad to be back uh, but the time was also filled with many wonderful things. My family and I, we traveled and went on trips. I got to go out and see my brother and dad in California, and he came back with us for a little bit. And uh, much of the time was also spent reading, which I really love and enjoy. Uh, and even the little things of, of getting to see my boys get off the bus after school, right? We don't get to see that often. Uh, was a real treat uh, for my time. I say it was also needed because Amanda and I needed that time. If I can lead off with being vulnerable in this moment, at the beginning of this year, right, uh, I took on a new role here, and between getting up to speed and learning what I didn't know about what I didn't know, as well as the ever-encroaching deadline of a sabbatical so that I could actually take off and not work during the time, it felt like I had two jobs. And uh, Amanda and I became ships passing in the night. Or to be more blunt, we were not doing well. Perhaps you're familiar with uh, the, the fact that when there is lack of good communication, we often fill the void with perceived communication, mistrust, frustration, contempt, cynicism, reinterpreting what they said to really soothe what you want to be soothed. 
One day early on in the time, we took a seven-mile walk and we talked it out. We continued to talk and walk over the sabbatical. And if I can bleed a little bit more and lean a little more into vulnerability, I had said yes to officiating a, a couple of weddings that happened to fall during the sabbatical. And I'm sitting there doing premarital counseling, talking about the importance of good communication in a marriage, talking about the importance of contrasting what I said, what, well, this is not what I'm saying, and, and just the, the way in which we communicate with our spouse. And God's like, Tim, are you listening? Like Nathan to David, you're the man. And that's not a good, you're the man. All that to say, it was good and needed time. And while I am grateful and happy to be back, I did truly love and enjoy that time away. And I share all of this, church, not just as an update, not just as a thank you, but even more that we as a church community would be encouraged to be vulnerable. That by being willing to open ourselves up, we might build each other which ties right into our passage today. Now that's one verse out of 11 at the very end. And I want to walk us through the other verses. But if you're one of those who, who loves action steps and loves actual application and the, and the so what, we'll get there. But we got to walk through what he's talking about first. So last week, Kevin uh, closed chapter four by focusing on a couple questions that the Thessalonians had. They, they wanted to know what happens after we die. They wanted some hope from Paul. That was the first question. What happens to us? But they also had a second question. Paul, you keep telling us and you taught us that Jesus is coming back, that he said he would return. When? When will that happen? When will these times happen? So they want to know what times and seasons will the day of the Lord be. Paul uses that phrase there, which he probably taught them, has Old Testament connotations, Old Testament references. Throughout the prophets, you, you see this phrase, the day of the Lord, the day when God will break in and bring judgment. Way to go, Tim. You're back your first week and you get to talk about judgment. In fact, Amos, one of the prophets, as an example, uses language similar to what Paul uses here. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? The day of the Lord is the day of reckoning, the day of justice, which Jesus does talk about in his second coming. And Paul gives them an answer that whether we like it or not is what it is. He says, we don't know. But what he does say, and he gives two illustrations to what he says. He says it will be sudden and it will be unavoidable. You see, the first illustration he gives is like a thief in the night. Look, a good thief is not going to tell you when he's going to break into your house, right? That would be a horrible thief. Like a thief in the night, he's going to show up. We're not going to know. We're not going to be able to tell. It's meant to the point, point to the fact that it will be unexpected when he comes. And really, there's, there's nothing more to be read into that illustration except the fact that it's sudden and unexpected. 
He then moves on to the illustration of labor, of childbirth, to illustrate the fact that it's unavoidable. Look, if you're pregnant and you begin to have contractions, the baby's coming, right? Like, you can pretend, oh, things are fine, right? Like, the baby's coming. It's unavoidable, right? But Paul draws the line to the fact that people could live in a way that don't see or don't want to see the unavoidable coming of Jesus. Now, before I go on, I want to acknowledge you could be hearing this today and question the idea of a God, of a being coming in judgment. Coming, in fact, in verse 3, in destruction. Coming in verse 9, with wrath. That can be a hard thing to believe or accept, whether you uh, argue because he says he's a God of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness, or you argue because do we really deserve it? And if I could push a little, bear with me. Could such a question come from a place of comfort? come from a place of misunderstanding how God has chosen to reveal himself in the Bible, in the Word. You see, first we believe God is a God of love and justice. His justice flows from his love to right the wrongs, to bring judgment on injustice. This concept really, honestly, is not foreign to us. We just struggle to apply it to God. I mean, can we not get worked up when we see and experience oppression? Can we not get worked up when, when we see things going unpunished? Do we not get worked up when we see human trafficking and child trafficking and those things? We feel it. We know it. We want to see justice happen. And there might, there's, there's more dialogue to be had here as to what uh, really is injustice or what not is. And that's not my point today because it's a discussion on truth. Interestingly, I, I wonder if when you eject truth from a system or you so self-internalize truth that it's my truth or your truth, can a culture really have a concept of justice and injustice? That aside... We regularly experience these ideas, and even more, we have seen and heard such injustices spanning time and globe that we feel that sense of injustice. And so to say that we can fight for injustice, but not believe in a God of justice because we feel it's inconsistent with his love, grace, and mercy in and of itself is inconsistent. Paul is admitting and saying when he comes, he will come to judge injustice. Keller puts it this way, all loving persons are sometimes filled with wrath, not just despite of, but because of their love. If you love a person and you see someone ruining them or even they themselves, you get angry. Look, I understand it can be hard to talk about judgment on injustice and, and God's wrath coming to, to, to right those things. But we have to because it's there. But Paul puts the hope in there. He puts in the hope of we are in the light because Christ died for us. 
Now, briefly, this, this, this judgment and this wrath is not ours to enact. They also write about vengeance is his. It's his judgment. It's his justice. Paul doesn't say take up arms. He says equip yourself with faith, hope, and love. See, Paul's point in this passage is to a people facing whispers of persecution. He says, look, we don't know when he will return. We just know that he said he would. How? How can they preach and teach and go about in such a way with such certainty? So if you read the other letters, if you read the stories of the, the apostles and the followers of Jesus after his resurrection, there was transformation. Something transformed them to go from scattered hiding to boldly proclaiming. It's because they saw him. They saw the resurrected Jesus. And that's why in verse 10, he can say that we will live with him again. And so much more could be said here. But if you're still learning about this Christian faith, whether exploring or believing and wanting to learn more, there are many valuable resources for us to trust that what they said about Jesus coming back to life happened. But to continue a little while longer in our passage, Paul encourages the people to be prepared. He says, you might not know the time and date, but be prepared. In a similar way to using the illustrations of a thief and labor, he uses the illustrations of being awake and sober, or the opposite of that sleeping and being drunk, as what being prepared looks like. Now, of course, we can miss that this is an illustration and attempt to read it literally, but if you think about staying awake until he returns, you know that's impossible. You might have pulled an overnighter once or twice in your life trying to cram for an exam that you really weren't prepared for. He's making an illustration of what being asleep and being drunk, the state that they put you in. There's a lack of awareness. And you ever been sleeping and your kid walks up to the side of your bed and you're just like, oh my God! Like, these put you in a state of unawareness. And the point is to have awareness of that day in our everyday. To live this day in light of that day, or as right N.T. Wright writes, live in the present as people who are to be made complete in the future. That's being prepared. Both states, sleeping and drunkenness, put you in unaware states. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell writes about this in Talking to Strangers. He talks about this theory about drinking, that it makes you myopic. That short-term considerations, what's right in front of you, begins to grow and become the main focal point, and long-term considerations begin to, to dissipate, begin to disappear. The, the theory is that what it's doing is crowding out everything except the most immediate experience. And Paul's saying, have you been lost in the immediate experience of what's happening in the world and in life around you and forgot what's coming? And I think this flow of thought puts a question in front of us. But before I get there, I, 
I fear that there are uh, ditches on either side of what Paul is saying or potholes that we can fall prey to. You see, we can, in an attempt to be prepared, begin looking for signs, begin looking for contractions, begin looking for, oh, there's a war in Israel, that must be. Oh, and then there was an earthquake and, and then this happened, it must be close. We can read history and realize that many people have tried to name the date and time, and sure enough, they say, oh, my math was wrong. It's next year. This is the date. But we can lose sight and begin to focus on those things. We can lose sight and begin to say, oh, well, the world is getting worse, so it must be sooner. Could be. But that's not the point to be prepared the other, the other pothole, I think, is in being prepared, we can begin to retreat from the mission with which he's called us. We can begin to become ingrown, insular, as a church community, and think, well, things are getting worse. He must be coming soon, so, so I'm going to retreat into, into these four walls. Listen, churches die when they start to do that. Paul doesn't say to do that. He calls us to put on armor of faith, hope, and love because the call is to go into the world and show other people the amazing truth of the gospel of what Jesus did, that we can face the day of judgment in perfect freedom and perfect safety because of what he finished on the cross. Don't you want to experience peace like that? Don't you want to experience certainty like that? Again, it doesn't mean that storms won't come. It doesn't mean that life won't be difficult. It doesn't mean that we won't hurt or be hurt. But there is a peace that comes from trusting in Jesus and giving your life to him. See, Paul's call to be prepared is to put on faith, hope, and love, which that could be a sermon in and of itself. Paul talks so much about faith, hope, and love. Trust in who he is, hope in what he has promised. And love, as 1 Corinthians says, being patient, being kind, being compassionate, bearing with other people. These are, this is the trifecta for Paul. He uses it everywhere. Preparedness for him is growing and fostering in those things because in those things, we see Christ. Christ lives out those things. But I said there's a question. Question in related to the most immediate experience in front of us. While your problem might not be sleeping too much or drinking too much, could be something perhaps to ponder, sloth or gluttony. But even those point to a deeper heart issue. Even those point to something deeper. While those crowd out everything except the most immediate experience, I wonder if we have been lulled to sleep or become drunk or become enamored with success, with the American dream, with stuff, with financial success or job success or financial stability or political power or might. But that's the answer. Maybe we've been lulled to sleep in comfort or the pursuit of happiness above all else. Jesus was hanging out in the temple with his people, with his followers, and he's watching people. And he's watching people give, 
And he comments on how most people give out of their excess. And he sees a widow put in two mites and saying how she gave out of her first, out of her, out of her start, out of her need. Is there something there about the call to generosity? And Paul says, sober up. Put on, clothe yourself, focus on these things. Look to these things that are found in Christ. To learn more of Christ is to learn more of these. To learn more of these is to learn more of Christ. And moving on, Paul says that we will live with him. Awareness of that day in our everyday. That as we sung, there is a day of endless praise. There is a day of seeing him face to face where our anxieties will be left behind, where there will be no more tears, where he will make sense of it all. So what, do you do, what are you to do now? Paul says, encourage each other. Build each other up. While we might have to wrestle with today the ways we might have been lulled to sleep or willingly drunk the wine of the world, our practical component is how can I encourage others? How can I build up others towards faith, hope, and love? So this week I challenge you, take five out of seven days and take five minutes. Say, Lord, put someone on my mind today that I can encourage, that I can build up. Or, or a Holy Spirit, make me aware of the person that comes into my path might be a person that needs to be pointed to Jesus, pointed to faith, hope, and love. Maybe write a note. Maybe call somebody. I mean, have you ever had that moment where a name pops into your head? And more often than not, if I can be vulnerable, I'm like, that's weird. Okay, move on. Maybe that's the whisper of the Spirit. And in that moment, not only can you pray for them, but maybe reach out to them. That's what Paul's calling the church to. And interestingly enough, that word encourage is used in other places in Scripture. Uh, It's a word that sometimes we'll talk about. They implore you. They plead with you. They urge you. May you comfort urgingly each other. There's, There's a sense of urgency to the encouragement. Not a secondary, but a primary and, and that other word, build up, literally is the word used for building, brick upon brick, building a house. And he's calling us to not be a people who tear down, but help other people put bricks on to build up together the house of the Lord. But see, here's the thing. And this brings me full circle. I don't believe that we can build each other up and encourage each other if we believe or that we pretend we have it all together. If I pretend the house is already built and I'm good, and I think you are, I'm not going to build each other up. I believe the power of vulnerability is to foster interdependence as we point each other, encourage each other, not to be like me, not to be like you or this person or that person, but to be more like Jesus. To dwell with him more till our faith may be made sight. I'll end with this. John Chrysostom was an old guy, the Christian faith, fourth century, wrote a lot of stuff. This is what he had to say about this verse. 
Do you see how everywhere Paul puts the health of the community into the hands of each individual? Exhorting one another daily, he says. Edify one another just as you are doing. And again, comfort one another with these words. I am only but one person. You are many. You will be able to be teachers to one another. Church, our call is to build and encourage each other up. Your call is to do the same. May we be a place and a people where people walk away feeling encouraged, feeling built upon. And it might, as they said in the journey groups, it might mean pulling a brick off, just, just one, not tearing the whole thing down, but acknowledging, hey, you might be lulled to sleep here and putting another brick in. It can include that. But may we be a people that point each other through faith, hope, and love to who our Jesus is, that one day we will see him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may your words rest in our hearts with a hope, with a faith, with a love, with a peace, with a security and a certainty that we are yours. Father, I do pray that if there's anyone here that longs for that, wants that, doesn't have that, that they may rest in the fact that it's as simple as saying, Jesus, I need you. Reminded of Romans 10.9, Lord. We confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that you rose again from the dead. You will be saved. That's it. Father, may we be a people that step out to encourage each other that we willingly step out of uh, maybe our comfort zones. Lord, I know me as an introvert can be a challenge as well, but may I reach out when you put a name on my heart that we would continually point each other to that day when we all get to heaven. In your name we pray, amen.